Good to have you with us. Uh, I am excited you're here today. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new teaching series. It's called Brave Heart, Courage in a World of Compromise. True Bravery is the title of this weekend's message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 1. That's in the Old Testament. We're going to spend the summer in Judges. And we're only going to look at one verse this morning, and then uh, we're going to go back to the book of Joshua, the first chapter, because it kind of sets the pace for us. There's some background we need to know before we head into the book of Judges. So one verse in Judges, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Hold your finger there, and then we'll turn back to Joshua. It's the book that precedes Judges. Joshua chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 9. Hey, let's start off by, uh, let me ask you this question. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I was asked by someone not too long ago, uh, are there certain movies you like watching over and over again? Of course, I had my list. What, what is your list? Turn the folks sitting around you and answer that question. What are movies that you enjoy watching over and over again? Real quick. Okay, you guys ready? What about over here? Someone yell out to me some movies that you guys like watching over and over again. Forrest Gump. Someone said Forrest Gump back here. Gone with the Wind. Okay. Anything else come to mind? What was that? It's a beautiful life. Or is, is that a beautiful life or it's a wonderful life? It's a wonderful life. One of those movies. That's a good, it's a good movie, isn't it? It's a great movie. How about here? Steel Magnolias? Sound of Music. Star Wars. You got Star Wars fans here in the house? Okay, what about over here on this side? Braveheart, baby. Okay, those sound good. I've got, my list is uh, Braveheart, Gladiator, uh, Lord of the Rings. It took me a while to kind of get into that little fantasy. But uh, believe it or not, I must confess, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. Isn't that sweet? My wife makes me watch those with her. Yeah, I'm so sensitive. That's right. Actually, I, believe it or not, I, uh, I enjoy watching... Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility because of the uh, character development and, and the romance. Wow, this guy's really wimpy. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, it sounds a little wimpy, but uh, I like, uh, the reason why I like movies like Braveheart, Gladiator, Lord of the Rings is because I love to see courage on display. I love seeing people show courage over compromise or cowardice in tough situations. Take a look at your sermon notes here. This is the key verse to all of the book of Judges. It's the very last verse of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They had no courage. There was major compromise going on in their lives. God's people found themselves in a self-destructive cycle over and over again. And what we're gonna see throughout this book and what we see in our own lives oftentimes is this complacency that leads to compromise. Compromise leads to consequences. Consequences leads to crying out to God for help, and then God sends a judge or a deliverer, and uh, that, that brings a covenant renewal. But you see them cycling through this time and time again, and history continues to repeat itself even in our lives. And so this study through the, the Old Testament book of Judges will help us to daily face with faith and courage the choice between looking to God as our Lord or following the inevitably destructive spirit and preferences of our pluralistic age. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture is deteriorating at a very rapid rate. And if you haven't noticed it, it could be that you're being swept away with it. Maybe there's a little bit too much complacency and compromise happening in your life. And uh, the, the church, as I'm watching the church here in America today, is becoming more and more shaped by the world rather than by God's word. And if there's ever been a time that we need to have a brave heart and courage in, in a world of compromise, it's now. And so, so we're going to spend the summer taking a, a look at the, the book of Judges. It'll be an exciting study for us. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, look at this text and unpack these uh, notes. <clears throat> Father God, you have, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of self-discipline. We don't want to be people debilitated by fear, paralyzed by anxiety. We don't want to cave in under difficult circumstances and compromise our convictions or give up on difficult challenges. So as we embark upon this study through the book of Judges, transform us, transform us into people who have courage in this world of compromise, compelled by your love, renewed by your Holy Spirit, all for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this uh, as we, so one verse in Judges, and then we got to go back to Joshua chapter 1, laying a foundation here, but Judges chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. Now turn back to Joshua chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 9. Let me give you a little background here as you are doing that. Judges recounts the history of God's people, Israel, between the time of Moses and, and Joshua. So you guys remember Moses? Moses is the, the guy that led the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So that, that is a picture of our slavery to sin before Christ. So he led them out of Egyptian bondage, and where did they wander around for 40 years? The wilderness. They wandered around in the wilderness. So they went out of Egyptian bondage, went through the Red Sea, depicting, kind of showing us uh, water baptism, and then they w wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Now this is what's interesting about the story is that it should have only taken them about 14 days to go into the promised land. But there was a whole generation that died off without ever going into the promised land. What two guys were the only ones out of that generation that went into the promised land? Yell it out to me. Joshua and Caleb. Boy, you guys are on it to, uh, this morning. Uh, and so Joshua and Caleb. And so, so you got Moses, and he dies, and then they pass the baton off to Joshua. And so Joshua is now going to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, and so he's kind of initiated that, and they're starting to take on territory. Now Joshua dies. And so now the people almost seem like they're left to themselves. And is that verse that we read, so, so, uh, so they're kind of wondering, okay, what do we do next? Because there's still a lot of land that they need to take on and take over. And so Judges recounts the history of God's people, Israel, between the time of Moses, Joshua, and then the first kings as they take possession of the promised land. So the book of Judges begins by looking backwards, Judges 1, 1, back to Joshua, and ends by giving us a summary statement of the whole book by looking forwards to the era of kings. There was no king in Israel, therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
And so that's what we have. And so in Joshua uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we have God's commissioning of his people to enter the promised land. And it also provides us a, a yardstick, kind of a yardstick uh, to measure the progress in Judges. And they don't do very well. They don't really, you can see that they really drift away from this commissioning. So as I read this commissioning, this is for us today to really enter into our promised land, you know, in a sense of that fullness of life that Christ offers us. Um, And so listen to what he says here, uh, Joshua chapter one, verse one. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness, now he kind of defines what that is, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great uh, sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you All the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, three different times in this text, he's going to say, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be, there it is again, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. I want success. So he's just saying, hey, you, gotta, you need to pay close attention to, the, to God's word. God's word is the very breath of God, our interaction with God. Look at verse 8, great memory verse. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I'm curious, how many want prosperity and success in their life? Show of hands, okay, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. We all want that. He's telling us how we can have that. And verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. There it is again. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So so let me give you the the following. These are following statements or sentences, ideas, thoughts, seven of them. that give us the themes and the truths of the book of Judges that will lay a foundation for us as we head into it next week. Um, So here we go. Number one, on your notes, we're talking about true bravery. Sanctification doesn't come to us automatically, nor must we wait to claim it upon Christ's second coming. It is to us what the promised land was to Israel to be entered into as our faith and courage grow. Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Arise, go over this Jordan into the land that I am giving to you. Verse 3, notice that he, I'm giving this to you. So it's out of God's grace. Verse 3, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. So it's really all about God's grace. Grace is not against effort or action, but it is against earning and achievement. 
They're not earning this, they're not achieving this, but they're through their actions. So here's the idea. The promised land is not gonna come to you. You must go to the promised land. I'm giving this to you, but you need to take possession of that. Now, what is sanctification? Those of you that are familiar with this idea of salvation, it's just, it's out of this world when we understand that salvation is from God, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's just, it's stunningly beautiful, and there's different aspects of salvation. The first one is justification. That's where God declares us righteous before him, not based on our performance, but based on our faith in the performance of Jesus Christ. And that in itself is, is pretty stunning, that I'm in right relationship. I'm righteous before God. So I have a relationship with him. There's no barriers between me and God. And then, so sanctification is the process of our uh, cooperating with God as he makes us practically what we already are positionally. Positionally, we're righteous before God. So he begins to make us practically to where we are actually beginning to live out of that that love that we have in him, and it transforms our lives. So it is the process of God making us more holy. Oftentimes I like to define the word holy as whole, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, we're whole. So it is the process of God making us holy, or Christ-like, or more loving, joyful, peaceful, so he's working in our lives. I, I like the idea that the promised land is, is a, a land of milk and what? Yeah, milk and honey. Milk represents strength. Honey represents satisfaction. So God wants to work in our lives in such a way that we can face anything in life. We have strength, milk, strength in our life to face anything. We're not overwhelmed by life's trials, but we're not also seduced by life's temptations because we have unbelievable satisfaction, honey in him. So it's all a picture of that. I love, I read this, uh, I've read quite a number of his books. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in this particular one, uh, really impacted me a number of years ago. It's called uh, That Incredible Christian. There's a chapter in here. He talks about our unclaimed riches, and he kind of goes through the whole idea, talks about sanctification. He talks about justification. It starts with justification, glorification, not uh, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification, once again, is where he sets us free from the penalty of sin. No more condemnation. I stand before him completely righteous. I'm brought into his family. I'm his child. That's a fact. It's an objective truth. Immediate status change, <laughs> it's crazy. And, and then what happens is then through sanctification, he begins to conform my life more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He works in my life in that. But glorification is also pretty amazing. It's when we go to be with him for all eternity. And we have new bodies and no more tears, no more sin, no more suffering. Just, it's pretty spectacular. And he talks about that. But the, what he focuses in on is the sanctification uh, kind of process here. And this is what he says about this idea of sanctification. You have as little as you are satisfied with. God give it to all men liberally. But it would be absurd to think that God's liberality will make a man more godly than he wants to be. The man, for instance, who is satisfied to live a defeated life will never be forced to take victory. The man who is content to follow Christ afar off will never know the radiant wonder of his nearness. 
The man who is willing to settle for joyless, barren life will never experience the joy of the Holy Spirit or the deep satisfaction of fruitful living. It is disheartening to those who care and surely a great grief to the Spirit to see how many Christians are content to settle for less than the best. In other words, we find ourselves wandering around in the wilderness rather than entering into the promised land that God has for us, the fullness of life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And so we kind of wander around in the wilderness rather than go in and take possession of what is ours. That's the idea here. He he concludes this by saying that God has placed before his redeemed children a vast world of spiritual treasures and that they refuse or neglect to claim it may easily turn out to be the second greatest tragedy in the history of the moral creation, the first and greatest being the fall of man. Isn't that interesting? So let me ask you this. Could there be more to the Christian life than what you're currently living? I mean, would you be one of those that just kind of wandering around in the wilderness? Why did they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years when it should have only taken them 14 days to go into the promised land? It was their unbelief. And are you letting unbelief continue to, to dominate your life when God says, look, it, I've given you all of these resources, all of these treasures. They're yours, but you need to take possession of those things Wouldn't you love to experience more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of your life? I would. I would. So next point on your notes, number two, as Israel fought their way into possession of the promised land, we must fight on toward maturity, meeting and defeating enemies that would stand in the way that would stand in the way. How do we do that? Now, I want you to discuss this with the folks sitting around you again. And here's my question. Two questions. What is the most frequent command in the Bible? Don't answer it out loud. I want you to answer it with the folks around you. What is the most frequent command in the Bible? And what is the most frequent promise in the Bible? Most frequent command, most frequent promise in the Bible. Discuss it real quick with the folks sitting around you. Okay, do you guys know the answer to that? Because some of you are really quiet. Did you just totally refuse to even discuss it with the people sitting next to you? Or they just don't know anything, and so you better just sit and wait until I, t- until I tell you. Because you guys are really quiet. Maybe you, you got that done really quick. You might be being a little bit rebellious this morning. I might have to come out there and get you. Okay, so what, what did you guys come up with? Maybe you guys already had the answer. So, okay, so what was the answer to? What's the, what's the greatest, what's the most frequent command in the Bible? Yell it out to me. Fear not. That's a good one, though. You, you, you guys said love one another. Actually, it's fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Listen to me. Don't be afraid. Most frequent command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Why? What's the most frequent promise in the Bible? I will be with you. Whoa! That's awesome! Don't be afraid. I will be with you. Most frequent command? Don't be afraid. Most frequent promise? I will be with you. Did you see the text here? That's what he's saying. 
I mean, that's exactly what he's saying here. Look at uh, most frequent command in the Bible, Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, 7 and 9. Look at 6. Be strong and courageous, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Why can we do that? Why can we fight on toward maturity, meeting and defeating enemies that would stand in our way? Why can we take possession of the land? Why can we be sanctified? Why can we experience all the fullness of life that Christ has for us? Because he will be with us. He will be with us. It says, look at what's the most frequent promise in the Bible? Verse 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 9, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Listen to me. Wherever you go, the Lord your God is with you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can take that to the bank. I am with you. Don't be afraid. I, will, I am with you. I am with you. That's amazing. I love that. And so it's, it's all over the Bible. It's in this text. He's wanting us to understand this. And um, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the virtue of courage is a prerequisite for the practices of all other virtues, otherwise one is virtuous only when virtue has no cost. What he means by that is, I mean, it's easy to, to be loved, to show love when everybody around you is really, really lovable, isn't it? It's pretty easy, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a loving person. So have you had any, anybody around you lately that's really mean? How loving are you then? It's a little bit harder. And it's, and it's easy to be generous when you have surplus. And it's easy to stand up for your faith when surrounded by allies. But it takes courage to love your enemies. It takes courage to be consistent with tithing and giving, giving to the Dare You to Move campaign when there's more months than money. It's, it's, it, it takes courage to stand up for what you believe around people who are antagonistic. I mean, it's hard. Take a look at the next point on your notes, number three. God wants lordship over every area of our lives, not just some. Half-heartedness will prove to be a snare. So this is what sanctification is. So we talk about justification, sanctification, glorification. So this whole idea of uh, moving in and taking over the, the promised land, experiencing the fullness of life that Christ has for us, it's really about lordship over every area of our life. Sanctification, holiness, holy, devoted to God, holy, spelt W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted to God. Uh, and so you'll have to come back next week because here's your reading assignment. Read chapter one and into chapter two of Judges because we're gonna talk about this half-heartedness and the, and the snare that it is. But we need to deal with some heresies as it relates to sanctification. You'll see there on your notes two, there's actually four heresies. Let's go with the first two. They're in contrast, activism and quietism. Activism is if it's going to be, it's up to me. It's this pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of a mindset. It's, it's what drives the whole billion-dollar industry of self-help. And oftentimes that has infiltrated the church. That it, this, the way that I'm going to get over this problem is I've got to work hard. I've got to work really, really, really hard. It's, it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Well, that's not true. That's not completely true. This, there's some half-truths to it, yeah. But, and then there's the other extreme is quietism. Let go, let God. God's going to bring the promised land to you? No, it sounds like you, you have to go in and take possession of it. But he's going to empower you. He's going to be with you. He says, don't be, don't be afraid. But I'll be with you, but here's what I want you to do. And so there's, there's, that's why the Bible tells us 
To balance those, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 tells us uh, to work out your salvation. He's speaking to believers. They have salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So there's this balance between your work, God's work. What's God's work? He's going to change your desire and give you the ability and now you need to begin to walk it out in your life. You need to take possession of that promised land. Here's a couple other of the heresies and they are legalism and antinomianism. We taught you that recently. I think it was uh, Easter weekend we talked about that. And so this is, this is how these two work. And we're talking sanctification, holiness, wholly devoted to God. So we are justified by faith alone but not by a faith that is alone. James 2 verses 17 and 26 says, a faith without works is what? Yeah, yeah it's dead. So if you really have faith, it's going to be alive, it's going to make a difference in your life, there's going to be change. And so legalism says, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Of course he's going to give me the promised land. Look how good of a person I am. Well, that's not why he's giving you the promised land, okay? It's not based on that. So legalism, I obey, therefore God accepts me. That's not true. He already accepts you. Antinomianism says, well, God accepts everybody, therefore I can live however I want to live. I don't have to obey. Well, that's not true either. So antinomianism is kind of anti-law. Here's what the gospel teaches. God accepts me, therefore I want to obey. Did you notice what he says is, as they're going into the promised land? Verse 7, he says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant. Now, you've got to go back to Exodus to discover the law. And the law was given in Exodus chapter 20. But what preceded Exodus chapter 20? Exodus 19, of course. <laughs> And what's in Exodus chapter 19? Covenant love. Covenant love. I love you. You are my people. Now, how you can respond in love back to me is live according to this law. And so he gives us this desire, gives us the ability to be able to live for him. And, and he loves us. He loves us in that. And so, so he says here, Moses, my servant, commanded you, so be very careful to do... All the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. There's, that's pretty important. You want to live a successful life, even regardless of what's going on around you? This is success. Listen, there's no possession, no position, no pleasure in this world that compares to what God gives to us. If you're living smack dab in the middle of the promised land, milk and honey, this relationship with God that only he can give. There's nothing in this world that compares to that. That's, that's the point. That's why he says, and I memorized this in the NIV, so when I read through this, it's kind of awkward, the, the ESV. But he's, basically, this is how I memorized it. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it. And you're going to be prosperous and successful. Yes, I want that. Yeah, it comes through this interaction with me, God's word. Because God's word is the breath of God. Imagine if God wrote a book. He did. <laughs> it's right here. We can interact with him. Don't let it, you know, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it and prosperous and successful. And so, so this idea of holiness is that we, we want to live for him because we look at his commandments and they come to us out of his love and, and wisdom. And so this idea of this transformed heart, his covenant love for us, transformed heart, transformed heart is when what you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same thing. 
That's why I love what John Newton wrote Amazing Grace says in one of his hymns. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Yeah, certainly fear and pride can restrain the heart. You can have a morally restrained will through fear and pride. Fear, God's going to get you. Or pride, you don't want to be like all those other people. But no, love transforms the heart. So this isn't about a morally restrained will through fear and pride. This is a heart for God. He, we are smitten by the beauty and the glory of who God is and what he's done. Covenant love, chapter 19 of Exodus. And then here's his commandments, chapter 20. And so we want to serve him. We want to honor him. We want to live for him. Number four, spiritual decline is inevitable and spiritual renewal is a continual need in our lives. And so even though we want to live for him, we're going to still struggle. And, and so it's, there's going to be this spiritual decline in our life. And so spiritual renewal is a continual need. And so what we're going to see as we work our way through the book of Judges is that we will see a regular, repeated decline, revival cycle. And, and Judges is, is the best book in the Old Testament for understanding the renewal and revival, renewal and revival, while Acts in the New Testament is the best place uh, for understanding renewal and revival. The revival cycles in Judges, though, and it's pretty troubling as we work through it, the revival cycles in Judges become weaker and weaker as time goes on, while when you study through the book of Acts, they grow uh, wider and stronger, and that's why the Bible tells us, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We need to look at our hearts consistently. Part of my reading yesterday, as I read through the Bible, was 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. See if this sounds familiar to you. The time when kings go out to battle, but David remained at Jerusalem. Anybody know what happened there? He was looking when he should have been battling, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And before long, he brings her up, has sex with her, she gets pregnant, he kills Bathsheba's husband. I mean, it's just, it is a mess. It is a mess. The prophet confronts him, and because he's a man after God's own heart, he repents. And of course, in, in Psalm 51.12, we have that repentance. And part of that repentance, he says, 51.12, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Now listen to me. It wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation. Therefore, he sinned. Complacency took hold of his life. He should have been battling, but he wasn't. He's just kicking back, complacency, compromise. Oh my goodness, what crazy chaos it brought into his personal life and into the kingdom. And of course, he repented, cried out to God, and yet he still had to deal with the consequences that lingered on after that. And so, so why do, that's why in 1 Timothy 6.12, it says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. I don't know if you've ever, I've been a Christian my whole life, and from time to time I've come across people that think that Christians are cowards and weak people. I mean, I, and, I, and I always go, what? You gotta be kidding me. I mean, how many have ever heard people say that or have been around people that say, yeah, Christianity is for cowards and weak people. Um, are you kidding me? I mean, I went through a list of the things that are, that the courage that is necessary to be a Christian. It takes courage to become a Christian because you have to own up to your own sins before a holy God. 
Not only does it take courage to become a Christian, it takes courage to just live out the Christian life, to be a Christian, because it involves diligently obeying all that he commands, whether you agree or not, and patiently accepting all that he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Oh my goodness, it's hard to live by faith and not by sight when things are going crazy in your life. It's like, where did that come from? And still believe that God's in control and he still loves you and he's gonna take care of you in that. That takes courage. It takes courage to do that. It takes enormous courage for a single Christian to stay sexually pure in our sex-saturated society. It takes courage to fight off the greener grass temptations in marriage and work through the layer after layer of hurts and masks and defense mechanisms working on your marriage relationship. My wife and I know that. I mean, we wouldn't be together today if we hadn't had the courage by God's grace to face the issues in our marriage relationship. It takes courage to discipline our kids without being too controlling or too permissive and at the same time not being intimidated by our midget demon's tantrums of disapproval. I mean, they throw that temper tantrum and it's easy to cave in. It's like, okay, I'm going to give in. They're just beating me to death and, and I want them to like me. No, you don't. They don't have to like you. You're not their friend, you're their parent. And so it takes courage. It takes courage. It takes courage to, to build significant Christian relationships and move on beyond talking about the weather and sports and become vulnerable and start talking about what's really going on in our lives. It takes courage to stick with your biblical convictions when someone at the office or at school or in the neighborhood thinks that you're an old-fashioned, hopelessly idealistic, strange, religious fanatic. I talked with a guy a number of years ago, and he says, well, nobody even knows that I'm a Christian where I work. And I thought to myself, you gutless Christian. I mean, I thought, nobody knows. Yeah, I just assumed that they wouldn't know. What? I'm not telling you to impose your faith, but expose it through your strong work ethic and great attitude and look for opportunities to maybe share your faith or at least point them to Jesus. But it takes courage to do that. I understand that. I understand that. And that's, that's why I think Christianity isn't for cowards. And, and that's why he says, fear not, most frequent command, fear not. Most frequent promise, I'll be with you. See, we forget that. We forget that he is with us. So next point on our notes, we need a true savior to which all human saviors point through both their flaws and strengths. Through both their flaws and strengths. The book of Judges is not about a series of role models. I've heard it taught like that. Samson, when we get to Samson, you're gonna go, this is one despicable dude. I mean, you're going to go, wow, I never knew this. Yeah, they can't probably put that up on the flannel graph in the kids' room, a lot of the stuff that he's done. He's a womanizer. He's messed up. And so we're going to get there, and we'll talk about that. But, I mean, he, if anything, he points to the real, real true Savior. So the book of Judges is not about a series of role models. The increasing magnitude of evil and brokenness in, in, in the narrative and in our lives point us to our need of a savior, not role models. The decreasing effectiveness of the revival cycles and decreasing quality of the judges point us to the failure of any human savior. We're gonna look at 13 of these judges through this series. And uh, I love the movie Braveheart. And the reason for that is because it's a true story of William Wallace, a bold Scotsman who is willing to risk all to rally his countrymen 
to freedom fueled by a ferocious love for his bride. Pretty interesting story. I think it's a, just a dim glimpse of, of Christ's love for his church. Our world is filled with stories of good against evil, some king, ruler, hero, coming back to slay the dragon, save the people. Why are we so attracted to m movies and stories and books like that? Because Jesus Christ is the underlying reality under which all of these other stories point. He is the beautiful prince, ruler, king, your heart longs for. You know that. Maybe not, but that's the truth. Your heart longs for him. When you, when you watch those movies, read those books, and hear those stories, here's some cross-references. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and 11 says that these Old Testament stories are examples to us. John 5, 39, Jesus said they're all about him. And that's why in Hebrews 12, 2, it says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So here's the deal, as we walk through the book of Judges, and this is really about everyday life, if the beauty of Christ's sacrificial love for us doesn't take our breath away, something or someone else will. You see, holiness or sanctification, as we're talking about here, is someone who is so happy in Christ that sin has no appeal anymore. And that's sanctification. So next point on your notes, number six. The doctrine of grace and redemption keeps us from seeing any person or situation as hopeless. No sin you've committed or sin committed against you is a match for God's amazing grace. The reason why I need to say that, and you've heard me say this a lot, but man, this book, is, is, it's gonna be a really a hard read. And you're gonna think, wow, these people are hopeless. And we are to be reminded, no, no, they're not because of God's grace. In fact, did you notice in verse two of Joshua one, it's, it almost seems kind of obvious. He says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. No kidding, I saw him, he's dead. Why are you telling me that? Because the reality of that needs to sink deep within our hearts because it would have been too easy for them to say, let's just go in our little holy huddle here right outside the line of the promised land because I don't know what we're gonna do now because remember Moses was the one that led us out of Egyptian bondage and through the wilderness and what are we gonna do now? How are we gonna take on the promised land? Moses is dead Move on. That's why he says very clearly, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan. Are you going to just camp out on the, on the edge of the promised land? Moses is dead. Now, move on. And so there's, a, there's an appropriate time in our lives as it relates to the sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed to us. Yeah, we, we grieve them. We work through them. But at some point, we have to move on. We've got to move on. And I understand it, it, it's a different timeline for every one of us. I'm not talking about any quick, easy fix. It takes time. It takes time. But at some point in your life, you've got to go, okay. Okay, it's time to move on. Moses is dead. Yeah, I was beat up terribly in that relationship. Yeah, I have this sin that constantly harasses me and works me over. I'm moving on beyond that. God has something more for me. I'm going to move on in into the promised land. That's why I, I loved as we finished up the series last week in the Lord's Prayer in our prayer series, Experiencing All in Intimacy with God. And, and in that Lord's Prayer, there's confession and forgiveness. And I, I shared with you about the little girl's prayer that 
she thought it said, forgive us of our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. And I love that because that's what we've got to do. We've got to take out the trash. We've got to take out the trash. And that's why I like what C.S. Lewis says. Getting over a painful experience is much, like, is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go to move forward. You have to let go to move forward. Here's the last point. Life is hard. But God is loving, wise, and in charge no matter what it looks like. No matter what it looks like. It's going to look tough. It's going to look hard. We're going to work through the book of Judges. They're going to go, wow, where is God in all this? He's right there. He's going to be working. He works in our lives. He is doing a thousand things that no one can see but him for our, glory, our good and his glory. Did you notice in verse 9? He says, don't be dismayed. Don't be dismayed. You know what it means to be dismayed? It's like to be so broadsided by life circumstances, you go, what is this about? Where did this come from? What am I going to do? Where's God in all of this? He said, don't be dismayed. That's going to happen. Circumstances are going to almost seem out of control. People are going to harass you and hassle you. You know, the things in your life are going to break apart. And he's saying, don't be dismayed. Don't let that rattle you. Don't forget. Be courageous. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I love what John Newton says. If all things are in his hand and if the very hairs of our head are numbered, if every event, great and small, is under the direction of his providence and purpose, and if he has a wise, holy, gracious end in view to which everything that happens is subordinate and subservient, then we have nothing to do but with patience and humility to follow as he leads and cheerfully to expect a happy issue. How happy are they who can resign all to him, see his hand in every dispensation, and believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could for themselves. I'm going to invite our band up here. They're going to teach us a, a new song that's going to be a theme song for this series. So as they come up, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, give us, give us the faith and the courage to enter into the vast world of spiritual treasures we have through Christ. May we find, may we fight, may we fight on toward maturity, meeting and defeating any enemies that would stand, would stand in our way as we give lordship of every area of our lives over to Christ Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the liberator of our lives and satisfier of our souls, remembering that no person or situation is ever hopeless because you're redeeming and restoring grace is working for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.